the uh, message I'm about to teach, I've taught it several times uh, from way back when. And um, it's on racism, and I've added classism to it. And in our polarized culture these days, this will have more edge to it than I think it ever had in the past. So, smoke them if you got them. Let's see what we got here. I gave you a half sheet of paper with the scriptures on it because they're long, and I want you to be able to chew on them. And so here we go with the scriptures right off the top. And uh, the first one is out of Acts chapter 2. Remember the Acts of the Apostles are the first recorded histories of the movement of the Holy Spirit and the advent of the church. So the church is beginning. And this is what the very earliest church looked like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Acts chapter 2. Oops, I got a mistake there. Um, Verses 27 through 42. Now, here we go. Move on a couple of chapters in the book of Acts, and you have this. Now, the whole group of those who believed were one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions. But everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and the great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or homes sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Acts chapter 4, 32 through 35. And then lastly, this uh, section out of Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, which would have been uh, after Acts some 20 years. So here's Paul's letter, third chapter. Now, before faith, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, We are no longer subject to the disciplinarian, that is the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. And as many of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Now, One would have to do, everyone, one would have to do an awful lot of twisting and contorting of the scriptures to force the text to say at this point, after reading these three passages. You'd have to twist it up in order to get the text to say, one, Christianity is okay with some receiving health and wealth and others receiving illness and poverty. You would have to twist it an awful lot. Secondly, You'd have to really twist the Bible to get to number two. 
Christianity is okay with prejudice, racism, privileged, and marginalized people in its midst. Everyone, the scripture is clear. Everyone is equal. Sharing is normal. You want to call it socialism? Fine. You can call it socialism, except it's actually Christianity. And then socialism co-opted Christianity. So we were here first. I'm just going to say that. One would have to do a lot of twisting and contorting. In this very moment, as we all sit here, and I'm looking around here for a service, and it's looking pretty lily white. In our city right now, there is black church and there is white church. And there is no intention of the two coming together. It's probably far from everyone's thought. And yet, and yet, when all of us stand before the throne of God, we will supposedly be one equal people. At the end of the Bible, in John's Revelation, the Apocalypse, there is a picture of the throne room, and here is what it looks like. Revelations chapter 7, verse 9. And there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne. Long before talk of diversity and multiculturalism was this picture of this countless ocean of people. White, brown, dark brown, cinnamon, light brown, reddish brown, mixed white brown, people from every race in all of heaven. And by the way, if only the Christians alive today were brought before the throne of God, we white middle-class Americans Americans would be but a very, very, very small percentage of heaven's population. The rest of heaven would be filled today with Asians and Africans. Now, the reason why there's two separate churches in this fine Sunday morning goes well beyond just music and preaching styles, although that's a big deal because those are cultural differences. The reason why we're separated is the difference between the haves and the have-nots, between our inner city brothers and sisters and us out here in the suburbs. And I think we all understand this. No white person in America wants to trade places with a black person. It's very, very clear. Years ago, a survey was asked of young black men and young white men, and the question was this. How much money would it take for you, white guys, to become black? And the white men said it would take at least a million dollars. And the black men said, nothing. (laughs) I'll do it for free. Years ago, I visited the state of Mississippi. I was living in Los Angeles at the time. So you got quite the cultural uh, chapter turn there. I visited Mississippi. I was there in church business, and I was staying with a wealthy white young business owner outside of Jackson, Mississippi. And we were driving by some shanties on our way back from dinner on the outskirts of town to back to his beautiful home. And in my mind, it looked like nothing had changed for 200 years in my imagination. As there was poverty-stricken African-Americans and their children standing in the front yards on dirt and barefoot on cinder block shacks. Uh, shacks sat, sat on cinder blocks. And I thought for a moment in my L.A. sort of language... And it came to me to just simply ask him, so how's the race issue around here? Cringe. 
waiting for something. And he said this, very matter-of-factly, and rolled off easily. There's no problem around here. As long as they stay where they are and where we stay where we are, everything's fine. Okay. I knew probably something deep down inside was desperately broken within me, the shanties, and this man. Something that 350 years was not going to fix. Now, if you were one of those children standing out there in the patch dirt, patch of dirt watching the really, really nice suburban go by, what emotion would you feel? Jealousy? Greed? You might. But the predominant feeling that you would feel is anger. African Americans are angry because of the hypocrisy. Because on one hand, whites proudly recite the creeds of this country that all people are created equal and are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But they are not living a desirable life. They are not free and they are not able to pursue happiness. And this makes people bitter, angry, and hopeless. Yes? Why are things this way in our progressive, smart, educated lifetime? And there are many reasons. And here are... is my top pick. Inner city Africans, so you want to distinguish between middle class, suburban African American, and of course, working class poor, which research-wise tend to get grouped together, working class and poor, blue collar if you want to call it that. They're angry because they cannot get ahead. Anglos believe the answer to our race issue is individual effort. If they just get off welfare, take some initiative, stop talking strange and listening to weird music, and buy into the system of how to get ahead, which we all know so well, get a job, and find some self-respect, they get out of the mess that they're in. Authors Michael Emerson and Christian Smith believe the problem looks like an equation like this. I found this helpful years ago, and I still do. I put it there on your piece of paper as well. And here's the way the equation goes. You're all equally created, plus you all have equal opportunity, plus an X factor equals unequal outcome. Everything's looking good until you get to the X factor. What is the X factor then? What is X? Most Americans explain the X factor then. White America explains the X factor as individual initiative. Get off your hiney and get to work. It's that simple. That's what whites tend to think. Now, what's interesting is, is when whites have an actual black friend or black person in their family or at work that they actually go to lunch with and hang out with, They begin to explain the X factor differently. Two sociologists studying the issue discovered story after story like this from white people. When we asked Pat, they said, a member of the church, why, why there was economic inequality between blacks and whites, she said without hesitation, they've been discriminated against. When they asked her why she thought this, she said, because I have a black brother in law. And I've heard some of his stories, she said, and some of his experiences and other family members of his. 
Personal relationships, everyone, change attitudes about race. It is a very, very simple solution and very, very hard to do. But it is very, very simple. If you have African-American friends or relatives, everything changes about your attitude. If you do not, it's easy to stay with the prevailing attitudes of the day, no matter what your attitude is about it. Personal relationships change the attitudes of whites towards black, uh, white toward black, as well as black toward white. It changes from get off your lazy rear to the system has somehow been finagled to pin them down. So Emerson and Smith used this parable uh, to help us white suburbanites relate to the reality of discrimination and change out our X factor. So here's the parable, okay? Both Mary and Parker are overweight to the point of being unhealthy. They decided it was time for them to do something drastic about their weight problem. So responding to an ad for the Fat Away program, they drove to a rural area in their state where they are taken to separate areas in the woods at two different compounds. And for six weeks, they were located in these compounds and, uh, and they were there going to learn how to eat healthy. They were separated, though, when they got there, Mary and Parker. Their goal then was stated to lose 40 pounds each. What they didn't know is that the less than ethical Fataway organization was actually a research project, and they were studying various diets and exercise programs and weight loss expectations. Without a word, they placed Mary in her compound designed to help with weight loss, and they, but they placed Parker in a compound designed for Parker to gain weight even though he thought he was going to lose weight. In Mary's compound, there were running trails and a swimming pool and state-of-the-art exercise equipment, a basketball court and a sauna. In her cabin were magazines and proper nutrition uh, instructional videos on how to lose weight and an abundance of natural, healthy, low-fat, low-calorie foods and no sweets whatsoever. Each day, she was greeted by fit and trim people who asked Mary to go on a run with them. And they talked about how much they loved being thin and encouraged her that she too could be thin. In Parker's compound, there was only a tiny cabin and he was all alone. No exercise equipment, no of, none of, was available, but there was plenty of videos and movies that showed high-calorie foods looking sumptuous and more high-calorie goodies than even a sumo wrestler could desire. Just a few... Uh, fruits and vegetables. Everything else was fatty. The only other people Parker saw were also obese and that they talked about losing weight and seemed to not really care about their weight problem. After two weeks, both Mary and Parker came to the weigh-in, each unaware of each other's conditions in the experimental compound. Mary had lost 19 pounds and Parker had actually gained two pounds. Mary was irritated with Parker. We paid good money to be here, Parker. How can you waste it? You, you have to exercise. You have to eat right. Parker tried to make his case, but it only made Mary more irritated. And Mary told Parker he needed to try harder. More weeks went by and more weigh-ins, and the same trend held true. And Mary attacked Parker. Don't you know why you're here, Parker? This place is designed for you to lose weight. If you can't do it here, how are you going to do it back home? And Parker snipped back. The food here is fatty. The exercise is nearly impossible. And, uh, and Mary says this. 
It wouldn't matter even if that were true, Parker, because she thinks it isn't. When we get home, the food's going to be fatty and the exercise is going to be difficult and you're going to have to learn how to eat and exercise right regardless. Parker, no way is this as easy as you make it out to be. I think the fat away program is treating me unfairly. I'm not even sure I want to lose weight. Mary decided Parker had an attitude problem. But what Mary failed to see was the vast difference in the environments and the structural conditions that kept things the way they were. And Mary's constant telling Parker that effort alone determined his weight made him extremely frustrated and angry and felt defeated from the very get-go. That parable changed my mind when I read it almost 20 years ago. I thought, ah, the X factor looks like something beyond just get off your hiney and do something. And it works that way for weight loss and whatever else you'd like to do. Read a book. Watch less television. There are other things that go into the X factor other than just sheer willpower. You understand willpower is a muscle, right? So, (laughs) by the way, if you want to get something done, you know, like start a new hobby or exercise or something like that, if you wait till nighttime, since willpower is a muscle, it will be gone. You've worn it out. It's drained off. That's the way it actually works. So you better plan to do it during the daytime or first thing in the morning. That sort of deal. But more on that. That's a different talk about habits. Growing up then, imagine this. You never saw in the household an alarm clock. Never saw anyone get up to an alarm clock. People stayed up till 2 or 3 a.m. playing Xbox. What if you never lived in the same place as a child for more than six months? What if you never, ever, ever had been to a wedding, never seen people married, that the male in the household did not work and never was around for more than a few months? The primary mode as a child of discipline would have been slapping and beating and, and uh, with a whip, I mean like with a belt. And that was normal. Now, right now here, as you guys are probably aware if you stay up on things, here in Lee Summit, our seven school district, we've had this controversy going on here all the last spring, a controversy over what was called white privilege, still is called that, by the way, and it doesn't look like white people like being told that they're privileged by the superintendent by all the outrage on the whole thing. And African Americans in the school district are also outraged because the white people don't want to pay attention to any sort of racism that's going on inside the school district. Matter of fact, it got to such a point that some people in town were talking about the potential of riots and that we got pretty scared about an idea of having another Ferguson type thing going on here in Lee Summit. So is that sort of a real deal? So what about the X factor? Is it real right here in Lee Summit? To grow up in working class African American puts one at a disadvantage for jobs and within the school system. We have to understand that the school system is educated. It could be African American or it could be white, whether in administration or in the classroom. It doesn't matter, but they speak educated like it's a language with a complete glossary and a whole way of speaking 
<clears throat> and what happens is, is for working class families, they don't have that glossary or that vocabulary. And advisors, counselors, teachers, school administrators are scared. These people are scared spitless of those, those people. They speak weird. Individual, you know, curriculum programs and things like that does not make any sense to them. Moreover, if they ever found out the way the discipline was going on inside the household, those same people in the school could actually take their children away from them. That's scary stuff. So the best thing is, is to fly way, way, way out of sight and under the radar. Once again, things just stay the way they are. So when the school district wants to introduce racist, you know, uh, teaching on racism in the classroom, of course, teachers who have been educated and learned all about racism, imagine this, are actually put off by the whole idea of being called racist because they're not racist. But I would say they are educated. And education has a particular kind of environment to it that is hard for working class people to understand. That's my point. This is my opinion, by the way based on the research that I've done. So it's critical then to separate the race factor from the class factor. In my estimation, class, whether you're wealthy or poor, trumps race any day of the week. Class trumps race. If you are poor working class, that will make a larger difference than race. Because African Americans who are college educated or have master's degrees or uh, this sort of thing, they speak the educated language and are not afraid of anything in the school district. They understand racism and they have done something about it. But income level is what determined it. Education level determined it. This is what people are missing really on both sides of the argument. They think it's a race issue first, or even only, when in fact it's actually a class issue. Working class, white class, blue class, whatever you want to call it. At the end of the day, based upon the scriptures, the church leads the way. Average everyday Christians who are serious about following the scriptures must strive towards those values of the early church as it's expressed on earth as it is in heaven. Because heaven is real and we will all stand there someday. Class differences and otherwise. The solution to racism begins very simply with the idea of a friend. If you want to do something about it, and you say, well, what can I do about it? The very simple thing is, is to have an African American or for that matter, any other person who's different than you as a friend. Have them over for dinner. Hang out with them. Do something together. That's as simple as it gets. It's a very, very simple deal. What the church could do is, of course, on platform personnel, such as instead of me, that there would be an African-American or anybody else of any other kind of race or color up here. On, you know, some sort of rotating basis. That would be the cure. That would be the fix. Of course, the other thing that we're not talking about this morning, but we talk about plenty on other occasions, is what exactly what the scriptures were saying there in Acts. They held everything in common. Gulp. They sold their possessions and put it at the feet of the apostles. Gulp. 
who's in? <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, like, well, that was a different time and a different culture and a different situation. Like, prevarication, making excuses. I get it. Okay. Me too. Me too. What we do instead then is we have ministries and we do this sort of thing and we adjudicate it and we dole it out and we figure out how to make it happen with our neighbors down the inner city. And that's why we're uh, in close contact with the Hope Center. I've talked to Marvin Daniels, the director of the Hope Center, and he didn't really like the idea. But I said, I would like to come down and teach your parents how to speak white. You know, like how to do the school district. What is a college degree? It's not beautician school. How do you talk to counselors? Marvin's like, that sounds great. You have a wonderful idea. That's not going to happen. There's got to be a way. And then he told me also, by the way, he said, our kindergartners coming into the Hope Academy have never heard the word spaghetti pronounced the way it is in the dictionary. So now they have to spell the word spaghetti, but they've never heard the word spaghetti because they never heard it, it was never read to them, and that goes on and on and on. The curriculum does not match the culture. Just a for instance of what's going on in the big gap and the big divide. The first church, everyone, is what we're striving toward. We don't have to go back to wearing sandals and togas and this sort of thing, you know, and that sort of deal. And you have to understand the first church really was the dregs of society. It was the poor, it was the lame and the lepers and all the rest of them. They didn't have much to give away in the first place. Now, some did, like Levi, who sold their property and gave it to everyone. By the way, it was an extra property. But it says clearly in the scripture that some were selling their houses, And I imagine they weren't just shanties. And they were all living with things in common. Now, if you follow this throughout history, you will find that uh, whether it's the uh, Owens or the, um, the, all the various, during the 17th, 18th centuries, the various Christian communes that were socialist, they last for one generation and then it falls apart. Not really quite sure why. I'm sure there are plenty of books out there that I have not read about why Christian communes of socialism have fallen apart. The only ones that actually kind of seem to keep it a little bit sustained are Brethren, Amish, Quaker, and the other Anabaptists out there. And that's simply because they have a remnant mentality like they are the final pure church. Most of the socialist communes and communities of the 17th and 18th century, 19th century as well, had the same sort of an attitude. What do we do about it? We do what we can. We eat away at it. That's the way it happens. Get a friend, support the ministries, volunteer in the inner city. You know what I mean? You do what you can. You go out of your way to love your neighbor. It's just that simple. And I would just simply say this with this sort of ending. The idea is that you would want to do this now because you're going to do it for eternity. Eternity. That's a really, really, really long time. It would be a good idea to get used to it now. It's pretty much that simple. And it all begins here. On the night when he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, that's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One loaf, one cup. Everyone eating from one loaf, drinking from one cup. It is the sign of unity, of belonging. It is only possible through the one loaf, the one body, and the one cup, the one blood of Jesus. That's what binds us together. Otherwise, the world runs amok as we see so often. Only Christianity has this hope of putting everything aside, race and class, and come together with the one meal in the one body of Christ. It is not too much of an overstatement then at this point to say the church is the hope of the world. The church is the hope of the world. Amen.